Well, one of the things we learned in the whole sexual abuse crisis is that the changes have taken place in the church haven't come from the hierarchy. They've come from below, from the victim community who refuse to be silent. This is Expanding Horizons. Candid conversations, passionate people, important issues. Produced by the Jesuit Institute, South Africa. Father Brian Massingale is a priest of the Archdiocese of Milwaukee in the United States. He is the James and Nancy Buckman Chair in Applied Christian Ethics and lectures in Theological and Social Ethics at the Jesuits Fordham University in New York. He has been awarded honorary doctorates and countless awards. But his scholarship is not confined to lecture halls and academic journals, accomplished as he is in this regard. Last year, he was invited by the Jesuit Institute to South Africa as the presenter of the 2018 Winter Living Theology series entitled Racial Justice and the Demands of Discipleship. He is now back in South Africa, and we wanted to catch up with him to reflect on what he has experienced since his trip last year, but also to have a slightly more personal conversation about his work at the frontiers of ministry to some of the most marginalized, ostracized people in society today, whether because of their race, gender, or sexuality. Massingale is passionate about seeking justice for all. Questions of sexuality and power are often said to be at the heart of the present crises of sexual abuse by clergy in the church. So we also take some time to speak to him about that. Welcome to the very first episode in our new podcast series, Expanding Horizons. So Brian, welcome to our podcast series. You're the very first speaker in the series. You came to South Africa last year and you spoke across the country on issues about racial justice uh, and racism. And you saw the very dark side of racism, I'm sure, up close as it is here in South Africa. And you've seen the pain wrought by racism, even in the US, uh, as you have now in South Africa. Could you say something about your time in South Africa last year? Hmm. One, it's a great honor to be back in South Africa. My time here was a very blessed time. Uh, It was one of the highlights of my year last year. And one of the insights I came to is that 90% of what I would say in the United States about racism, I could say here in South Africa and have very little need to change anything. Both countries have this long history of entrenched legal separation that they've overcome now with a sense of political equality, a sense we now, the races are legally equal and set in the side of the law. They now have a political democracy in both countries. Yet in both countries, we still see the scourge of racism still play itself out in very ugly ways and yet in very subtle ways as well. One of the insights I came to in South Africa was something that I've come to in the United States, and that is that a political democracy in and of, of itself will not change things unless there's also an accompanying economic transformation as well. You can't have genuine political equality when you still have market economic inequality. And that's something I've noticed in South Africa. I noticed it in very mundane ways. Um, 
once when this was during the winter holidays when people were touring and when we were driving to Swaziland, we stopped at, you know, the roadside places for establishments to get some refreshments. And I noticed something. I noticed that the people on holiday were invariably white and the people who were serving them in these establishments were invariably black. And it's a marker of the economic inequality. Uh, you can see it also in South Africa in terms of the fact that we still have cities that are, you know, largely white in composition and townships that are still largely all black in composition, and yet they're in eyesight of one another. Um, so I think in both countries, we still see that the scourge of racism is something that is far, far from being in the past even though I think in both countries there are forces that would like to say, well, we've been there, we fought those battles, let's move on. But I think we're in both South Africa and the U.S., we still see that racism is still a very pressing issue that just won't let us go, and it needs to be addressed forthrightly. And you're very clear that racism is not going to be solved, resolved, or ended by the institution of laws. No, uh, you've, no. You mentioned this in your book very clearly. You call it a soul sickness. Could you say something about that? Absolutely. I think that one of the thing, reasons I think people get frustrated in dealing with racism, they think that, well, we've changed the laws. And they forget that these laws of separation were themselves emblems or visible signs of a deeper reality, a reality of racial superiority and racial inferiority, of internalized superiority and internalized inferiority. And simply because you change the laws, it's like the analogy I use is of gardening. And when I was a child, my mother had a garden. That meant that she decided what would get planted, but all the physical labor was done by me. And so when it came time to, to weed the garden, I would simply go out and pull all the visible signs of the, you know, the visible weeds. And she'd make me go back and do it again and pull out the root. And I said, well, why, Mom? You can't see it. And she said, unless you can take the root out, then the weed is going to simply grow back. And I think our temptation, both in the U.S. and in South Africa, is that we want to deal with the visible signs and symbols of racism, the obvious stuff, the, the hate language, the hate speech. We don't want to look at the invisible, the internalized superiority, the internalized inferiority, the unconscious ways, the unconscious attitudes they give rise to an unequal society. And that's why I call it a soul sickness. It's, it's these habits of thinking, these deep mentalities that are formed in us simply by being socialized in our world, in our culture. And until we can deal with those deeper fundamental attitudes and have a fundamental transformation there, then we're going to continue to find ourselves saying, it's 2019, it's been 25 years, why are we still fighting this battle? Or in the United States, we're celebrating the 400th anniversary of the first Africans arriving what is now the United States. And we're saying it's been 400 years and we're still going around and around about this race issue. Until we have the courage to deal with the deep um, attitudes of heart and mind and have a fundamental transformation there, we're going to continue to find ourselves in these impasses and continuing to revisit this issue and becoming frustrated that there's more progress in this not being made. I was struck when you were here last year and also through the conversations we've had during your time here at this time, 
that our separation, our geographic separation between black and white, colored Indian even, is stark and is still clear to you. Whereas to us, perhaps we think we're a much more integrated society. Could you say something about, you You mentioned this before, the, the spatial geography of apartheid mm-hmm. and, and how that seems to endure. Oh, yes. Let me give you another example. This visit, I had the opportunity to go to my first, you know, you call football, we say soccer, my first soccer game. And I was struck by the fact that it was probably the most integrated gathering that I've been to here in South Africa. And by integrated, I meant that there were maybe 75% of the spectators were were black and 25% were white. But I, the fact that I noticed that it was an integrated setting, but even there in this integrated setting, I noticed that there was racial division because of the Jesuit connections, we were able to get VIP tickets. And I noticed in the VIP stand, even though it's integrated, it was still overwhelmingly white. So it was just that even there, in this most integrative settings, there was still this reminder of racial separation. And so we could be, everyone could be in the same place, doing the same thing, doing it together, but not quite. And I think that's the challenge of life in South Africa, as I see it, is that there's an integration and people are together, but not quite. There still are these enduring separations. And the other thing I noticed during my time in South Africa was that while everyone was aware of these, and when I pointed out to people, they could readily say, yes, yes, we, we know that's, that, that's an issue. There was still a reluctance to engage the issue directly. And the more I've thought about it, the more I see that there's a fear that's present. There's a fear that if we talk about these issues too directly, it will take us back to where we were before. And no one wants to go back there. Um, so I think there's a fear that we talk about the divisions will become more divided. But the other thing I noticed is that there's a deep sense of, and I use a, a word here, and so correct me if I'm wrong, of shame in the white community. And it's a hard thing to talk about, but I think there's a deep sense of shame that we don't know quite how to identify what it means to be white in a majority black context where the political leaders are all black, but economic power still is skewed toward the whites. And how do we deal with, what does it mean to be white in a majority black context where we can contribute to the society? How do we contribute to the society? What is our contribution? And how do we deal with the legacy of the past, which puts us in this privileged position that we may not even want to be in, but we can't just simply undo the past? So how do we, how do we navigate that sense of, of shame? And I think that that's a, a deep wound that I don't think the church or society has really grappled with or even knows how to properly name? And how do we deal with the legacy of black inferiority, which is a difficult thing for for blacks to talk about, that there still is this sense that even though in South Africa, at least, blacks are the majority in political power, there still is this sense that 
white institutions, white education is somehow more valuable. So these are deep wounds that I think that this is the next frontier in racial justice. And until we can find some way of dealing with these lingering senses of internalized superiority and internalized inferiority, we're not going to make lasting effective progress in racial justice. How do you think we begin to deal with it? Are we dealing too slowly? I think it's only with the achievement of political equality that we can then find out what these deeper issues were. So in one sense, I think um, you're probably on the right timetable, that you had to finally say, okay, we have political equality. Now to realize we, because we have political equality, now we have to attend to the deeper issues that are present. I don't think we could attend to the deeper issues that are present until we finally had some sense of political equality. Because now I think we now sense that, okay, that wasn't enough. Okay, now what do we need to do now? And the other thing I wanted to say in South Africa's favor, everyone here is saying that it's 25 years, we should be further ahead. We've been wrestling with these for over 400 years in the United States. And if anything, I see in South Africa a greater openness to talking about these issues than what I see in the United States. So, I mean, South Africans should give themselves a pat on the back. Um, you have major issues to deal with, but at least there's a social consensus that there are issues to deal with. In the United States, we don't have that kind of consensus yet. You've written a great deal about these issues. You've reflected academically on these issues. But let's touch on the personal. Why does Brian write about this? Why are these things important to Brian? Hmm. I was dreading this turn in the conversation because it's easier for me to talk about the issues than to talk about me. Why do I? I guess I do for two reasons. One is that obviously there are issues that affect me existentially and personally. I am an African-American and this issue of race impacts my life every day. And so if my faith, if my intellectual activism has nothing to say to it, then I'm wasting my time. And so I attack this issue because one, it affects me personally, but also affects me as a believer. I deeply, deeply believe that I cannot be a Christian and not be concerned about those who are who have put on the margins of our society, not simply because of race, but also because of gender, of sexuality, of any number of human-created barriers, that these, I think, are just fundamentally you know, anathema to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. I believe that passionately. And that's the reason why I speak and say what I do, even though I know that it's not necessarily popular in either society or in the church. My faith in Jesus, as I understand Jesus, doesn't give me any other alternative but to do, to speak, and to write about these issues. So it's your life as a Christian that has put these demands on you, that has put the demand to fight for justice on all these margins, on all these fronts, uh, be they of race, be they of sex, of gender. And you're also a priest. So you have to deal with this 
as it touches the lives of people. And you have to deal with the racist as you deal with those who are much more accepting, inclusive and tolerant. How does that work? Yesterday at the Jesuit Institute, we had a day of reflection and contemplation. And the leader, retreat leader, had a, a kind of toss away line, but it was one that really resonated with me. And he said that we're called to be at the margins of the church and at its heart at the same time. And as soon as he said that, you know, it was like something in my soul just like went, the flip flops, because that's exactly how I experienced my life as a priest, dealing with these issues of race and sexuality, is that there are times because of my activism and because of my forthright stances on these issues, I do find myself on the, at the edges of the church. Because these people, these groups we're talking about are marginal not only in society, but they're marginal in the church. And the church has at times through its teaching and through or, or through its passivity contributed to people's marginalization and exclusion. And so if I'm going to be present to those folks, be it the LGBTI community or to those who are racialized minorities, then I'm going to be on the edge but I'm on the edge precisely because I believe I'm acting out of the heart of the church. And there are times when I think that I am called to be a keeper of a vision of the church that the church may not yet be ready for. And yet this is its heart. When I look at the, the man Jesus, Jesus was always eating and drinking with the wrong kinds of people, with those who were on the outskirts of their society. But he ate and drank with them as a symbol of saying, you belong. Because when we share a meal with someone, it's the ultimate measure of inclusion, that you belong, that you matter, that you count. And so I find myself as a priest, um, sometimes facing opposition from bishops and others, and so I find myself at the edges of the church precisely because I want to be at its heart. I want to operate out of its heart. And yeah, that's about us. Yeah, that's about who I am, I think, being at the edges of the church and at its heart at the same time and holding both of those in tension. And there are times when the tension is more burdensome than creative. But I have to say, overall, it's been a life-giving place for me to be. Burdensome, but creative. <laughs> um, I think it's precisely a time that we're at in the church at the moment, mm -hmm. uh, a very burdensome time, a time where I'm training for the priesthood, you're a priest already, uh, where many of our brothers in the priesthood have abused their power and have abused children, innocent, vulnerable children, sexually and otherwise. How do we keep faith in this time? We are called to deep honesty. I think the church at this moment is facing an existential crisis. It's a crisis that's rooted in two different realities, but they're intersecting. One is a system of unaccountable power 
which has arisen. And we call it clericalism, but what it basically means is that priests, bishops, church leaders have operated as if they were a separate caste over and distinct from the rest of the church. And so we've had unaccountable power. And so bishops have been able to act with impunity in shielding people who have done awful, terrible things, where they have saw their first responsibility as preserving and protecting the institution rather than protecting the vulnerable. And rather than exercising their power on behalf of the entire church, they exercise their power in order to protect those who are already in power. And so I think that system of unaccountable power is at the heart of what has happened and, and happening with sexual abuse of minors. But what's also implicated in this crisis is the fact that um, the church is called, the church is called to a, a deep examination of human sexuality and to a greater honesty in terms of what do we teach about human sexuality? We see this in terms of people calling for reconsideration of celibate priesthood, um, the ordination of women, looking at priestly sexuality and celibacy, but at their root, it's all rooted in the fact that since 1968 and the promulgation of Humani Vitae, the church's leaders have absented themselves from a real honest discussion of sexuality that the rest of the church has been having now for over 50 years. It's only in the last two synods, the Synod on the Family and the Synod on Youth, that we see it slowly dawning on the bishops that something needs to change in terms of our approach to human sexuality in general and the sexuality of the clergy in particular. These are the two strands that come together in terms of the crisis of sexual abuse that the church is now dealing with. And so I think that, yes, we need to call for zero tolerance in terms of saying that people who abuse children need to be removed from ministry. Yes, of course. We have to be far more harsh with bishops who will not protect the faithful. Yes, we need, we need to do that. But as with racism, dealing with these visible things will not take us deep enough unless we have the courage as a church to address the unaccountability, the unaccountability of power and unless we have the courage to address human sexuality in more adequate, ways, in more scientifically verifiable ways, and in ways that are more inspired by the gospel. The Pope called the heads of bishops' conferences to this meeting on the protection of minors in the church at the Vatican. And he's come under great fire, as have the bishops, for the outcomes of this meeting, which have shown themselves to be a symptomatic response rather than a response perhaps to the existential issues you speak of. I wonder if you could say something about that. How could it have been a better outcome possibly? When I at the summit, I think that the most powerful and um, effective interventions were those made by women. The women were the most powerful, eloquent, honest speakers. And in particular, the uh, Nigerian sister who spoke. And there was one, it was something that the press didn't pick up on, 
But when she greeted the bishops, the cardinals who were present, and she greeted the Pope, she turned to Pope Francis and said, Brother Francis. And that phrase, Brother Francis, sums up what we, where we need to go. I talk about unaccountability, unaccountable power. She addressed him not simply as Pope, although she was very respectful of his office. She addressed him fundamentally as a fellow brother in Christ. That's the image of church that we need to create. And unless we have the courage to create and operate out of that image of church, then we're going to continue to find these terrible things keep happening. What would it be like if cardinals, you know, weren't addressed as your eminence, but as, you know, you know, Brother Napier, or in my country, you know, Brother Sean, Brother Timothy Dolan. And we stripped away all of the unnecessary titles. That's the kind of church we need to create if we're really going to be serious about eradicating the scourge of sexual abuse from our church. And yeah, that's the, the hope of the synod, this meeting came from the women and from a sister who had the courage and the depth of faith to address the leader of the church as brother. I'm wondering, we've, we've spoken a lot about the issues, the vision of church, perhaps, that Pope Francis has. And I can't help but feel a certain sympathy for him for understanding his style of governance, if you will. He seems to, or he has been speaking quite a lot about synodality, subsidiarity, collegiality. And perhaps people were waiting for a hero. Perhaps people were waiting for somebody who was going to come out at this meeting and set everything right. And perhaps as the head of the worldwide church, he should have had that voice. But maybe he is calling the bishops to a greater maturity, to stand together on this particular issue and to formulate their response together. And that seems to me what he's actually calling for. And in that, he may be sacrificing his own personality. And perhaps it's, it's a way of him exercising a certain amount of humility in his role. What do you think? I would put it this way, that going back to that Brother Francis moment, I think people are looking for the Pope to do something dramatic. And I think that's part of our problem as Catholics. We still have this kind of top-down mentality where we're expecting everything to come from the top. And there's some wisdom in that because people at the top did some awful things. And the scourge of sexual abuse would not have happened had bishops been more forthright in their responsibility as shepherds. And so there is a necessarily, a necessary call to conversion that needs to take place at the top. But one of the things we learned in the whole sexual abuse crisis is that the changes that have taken place in the church haven't come from the hierarchy. They've come from below, from the victim community who refuse to be silent. It's interesting. I'll, I'll use this metaphor. When you throw a pebble into a pond, you look and you see the ripples that come out, that come out for the pebble's entry point. And when all of our attention is focused there at that entry point, at that center. But then when you see how the ripples, when they hit the shoreline, they return back to the center. And maybe 
what this moment is calling us to is to be a church where the primary virtue isn't obedience. We're gonna wait for the Pope to say something, we're going to then execute the orders. Maybe we're called to create a church where the primary virtue is courage, where the people on the shoreline speak truth to the center and those ripples then return to the center and have an impact. Now you can call that synodality, collegiality, as a theologian, I'm supposed to know those words and love them, but I think they get in the way. I would speak of it in terms of moving from a church where the primary virtue has been seen to be one of obedience and moving now to a church where the primary virtue is one of courage. Where we have the courage to speak to our leaders with frankness, with respect, with love, and together then we create the church that Jesus is calling us to be. The victims have certainly had that courage. And now the bishops need to have the courage and the humility to listen, to see themselves not simply as bishops, but to see themselves as fellow human beings who are impacted by the hurt and the pain and the trauma of another human being. To see these people not as dangers to the reputation of the church, but to see them as, as those who bear the wounds of Christ. And then to hear the voice of Christ that echoes from their cry. I think we'll leave it there. Uh, you've given us so much to think about. Thank you for your courage in being so candid, uh, in being so open with us, in saying things that perhaps we don't often hear priests say. And just for that virtue, that courage that you've had to put into words what I'm sure many of our listeners are feeling at this time. So thank you. You're welcome. Um, that's um, one of the compliments people give me that also pains me when people say, you don't sound like a priest. And it's like... Oh dear, why not? I mean, um, yeah, but as I said, to be at the edges of the church and at its heart at the same time, I think that's a call for all of us in these days. Please comment and subscribe to our podcast for more candid conversations, passionate people, and important issues. Expanding Horizons is produced by the Jesuit Institute South Africa with music and sound by Francis Tucson. This episode was presented by Ricardo De Silva. Visit us at www.jesuitinstitute.org.za.